Well, good morning and welcome to Resurrection Sunday here at the Orchard. I am so glad you are here. On a day like this, we have lots of guests with us. People who are here maybe for the first or second time this year or in their life. And I just want to go ahead and congratulate those of you who are nervous. As far as I can tell, no one has yet burst into flame. So we're all safe. And I say that because I know, I'm joking, but I understand that attending church, uh, anytime it's a new place, can be a little uncomfortable at times. And it reminds me of a story of a young boy named Johnny. Now, Johnny was attending church on Easter Sunday with his parents for the first time, and his father was in the bathroom, so he was in the hallway, and he was out there looking at a large plaque that was hanging right outside the bathroom. And as he looked at it, he saw that there were names listed all over it with an American flag on either side. The seven-year-old stood there staring for some time, and the pastor, seeing that he was having a moment, walked over and said, good morning, bud. How you doing? What's your name? I'm the pastor. Good morning, pastor. I'm Johnny. They stood there, still focused on the plaque, and finally the little boy said, pastor, what is this? Well, son, this is a memorial to the men and women who died in the service. The pastor could tell this had quite an effect on the young men, and they reverently stood there together in solemn silence, staring up at this plaque, and finally little Johnny worked up enough courage to, to finally speak. And with a, boy, a voice barely audible, he managed to ask, Pastor, which service did they die in? Is it the 8.30 or the 10? Listen, while we're here today on Easter, on Resurrection Sunday, talking about someone dying on a cross, I can assure you that you won't be one of those, okay? We're going to talk today about, uh, about Jesus and what he, what he did for us, but first I'm going to tell you a little bit about the orchard and a few things that we like to say over and over. We say in this place over and over, love God and love people. And we say love people, no asterisks, all people, and your people, so you're included. Second of all, we say there's room for everyone here. No matter what past, no matter what present, no matter the spiritual journey you've had that's brought you to this day, to this point, you are welcome in this house. We also say that we like to keep the main thing, the main thing here at the Orchard, and that's Jesus above all earthly issues. Jesus above politics, Jesus above pandemics, Jesus above everything in our nation that divides us. In fact, you won't find the Orchard endorse, endorsing political parties. You'll find us too busy endorsing Jesus. So regardless of how you vote, you're welcome here. We say it's fun to be us. Because church shouldn't be dull. It shouldn't be religious routine. Being a church should be filled with joy, with, with fun and full community, and a robust and real relationship with God. And finally, if you're here today and you're worried because you have some stuff in your past or your present that you're not so proud of and you know that you're not perfect, I just want to let you know to relax because you fit right in. The Orchard, we are not a perfect people. We are imperfect people seeking to be more like a perfect God. So today, relax and participate and listen, because here's what I believe, is that you have a divine appointment today. That's right. I believe that God has you here at this point from whatever, wherever you have come from, whatever has brought you here, whether you're in the house, whether you're joining us. We just, I just talked to a friend who said that their family, and I'll listen, down in Mexico, we have those in Afghanistan, those in Vanuatu. Wherever you're joining us, I believe God has something for you today to hear for the first time in a new way. 
Before Jesus was crucified, he was walking around the countryside with his 12 disciples, and he would teach them. This was earlier in his ministry, and in Luke 9, he turns to them, and he asks them a question. He says, who do people say that I am? Like, who are they saying that I am? Uh, And this is an important question, a very important question. For if Jesus is who he says he is, then we must wrestle with that claim and what it means for our life. So the disciples, they go on to answer him. They say, well, they say you're John the Baptist returned or Moses or another prophet come back. But it made me wonder, how would they answer that question today? Who do people say that I am if Jesus asked us? Well, over a quarter of Americans believe Jesus just to be another religious or spiritual leader, like Buddha or Muhammad. A large percentage of people don't believe that Jesus was divine at all. 52% of Americans believe Jesus was real, but that he sinned just like anyone else. In our area, Jesus is often known as like a loving guru who taught peace, but who wasn't God. He's often thought of as a mystic or just a really good teacher who had deep wisdom that his people messed up. It's hard to say he doesn't exist, though. Even some of the leading atheists that I've read through concur that he was a real person. Jesus walked the earth. Atheist author Bart Ehrman said this. This is just one example of the claim of Jesus. He said it takes more faith to believe that he didn't exist than he did. Quote, in terms of percentages, it's almost undeniable that Jesus actually existed. It's a certainty. There's more historical documentation for Jesus than anyone else in the first century. What's the point if we just start to ignore all the evidence? Jesus is mentioned by early historians and writers, and much of the credit goes to the fact that they watched the Jesus movement, Christianity, grow so big and so fast that there could not be just some imaginary person at the core of it. In fact, Jesus came and fulfilled over 300 Old Testament prophecies, some of them hundreds and thousands of years old. The odds of one person fulfilling just eight of those prophecies, a mathematician worked it out, it's 10 to the 17th power. That's 10 with 17 zeros behind it. Those are the odds, which strangely is also the exact odds of the Denver Broncos winning the Super Bowl before Russell Wilson. It's quite a long shot. So if Jesus was a real, a real person, then the question is, was he who he claimed to be? which is what he asked his disciples in the next question. He turned to him and said, well, who do you say that I am? And this changes it, doesn't it? Who do, you, who do you say Jesus is? This is the most important question in the Bible. I believe the whole Bible points to Jesus. I believe this is the most important question in life. I believe that how you answer this question impacts your past, your present, your future, and your eternity. It it truly is the greatest of questions. Jesus asking you today, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? The disciple Peter immediately answers, you are the Messiah sent from God. Like you are the savior. You've come to save us. But let's make this personal. Who is Jesus to you? If he was here and said, who do you say I am? How would you answer you know, I grew up right here around in Redstone, and my dad um, was a local pastor, and he used to take me out on visitation, pastoral visitation. You guys remember that? Any of you receive a visit at some point? I thought it was just because I was such a special kid, but I learned earlier, thanks mom, that she just needed her ADHD son out of the house for a few hours, so I would tag along with dad. And I visited many people's homes in this area, and it was on one of these visitations, actually on the back road out by driving towards CRMS, we pulled into a driveway of Mike and Vicki King, and then somewhere in there, I asked my dad, how do I get to heaven? And I'll never forget, 
my dad, he, he turned off the car, turned to me and smiled and, and said, that's the best question you could ask. He then went on to describe for me the reality of Jesus. And right there on the back road here in Carbondale, I, 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 I proclaimed the same thing that Peter did, that Jesus, you are my savior, sent to save me. Now, that decision has impacted every day since that day. Have I sinned since that day? Daily. Ask, ask my beautiful bride. She'd be happy to tell you. Have I doubted my faith? Absolutely. Absolutely. Have I had seasons where, where I didn't behave as someone who knew Jesus? Yes. Have I had times of indifference or even more importantly, have I had times of anger and disappointment and tears with Jesus? Yes. But that belief that Jesus, you are my savior, that you died and rose again is stuck with me. And, and, and one thing about the orchard is we like to be very honest. And so when I tell a story like that, we have to address something because a lot of people would say, I'm so glad you found your truth. I found mine. Which is another question we have to ask. Is Jesus the only way? In our culture, the most overwhelming popular answer, answer of course, is no. There's many paths to one place. And honestly, it's, it's not me or any other preacher who first addressed this exact issue. It's Jesus in his own words that addresses this. I mean, think about it. I do doubt that God would send his son to be tortured and killed if there were other ways for salvation and to get to heaven. Parents, would you send your children into any harm if there were other ways for the people to be saved? I wouldn't send my child into that situation, in any situation. If there are other ways, then sending my child simply isn't necessary. And if there are multiple ways to heaven, then, then Jesus dying and resurrecting, if you're honest, isn't all that necessary. In fact, there, if, if there are other ways, there's, there's probably easier ways than following Jesus. If the heaven is multiple choice, then, then sign me up for the way to heaven where I get to work my way through a bag of chips and watch, you know, Netflix. Let that be my way, you know? Like, like if they're all leading to one way, why not? If all paths lead to God and Jesus is just an option, then why come and die? Again, it was Jesus himself who spoke on this topic. I'm going to let him speak. And, and, and to say that there are many paths and that Jesus is just one of many is to actually not know who he is or what he claimed about himself because Jesus didn't leave room to be just a good teacher. You can't be just a good teacher and claim the things that he claimed. Let's read what he says in John 14, 6. He said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no one can come to the Father except for through me. He's saying, I'm it. In a world where truth is relative, where, we, where divine truth is relative based on our feelings, I am big T, capital truth. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and apart from me, you cannot get to God. And Jesus declares himself the only way, but it's not a threat, it's an invitation. It's always been an invitation. He doesn't force anybody. In fact, did you know he has been actively working in your life through circumstances and through other people to call you to, to himself? Did you know that? God has been working in your life to call you to himself, motivated by love. He loved you enough to come and take the hardest path necessary to make the only path necessary to God. And this morning, I want to show you just briefly, in the time we have remaining, that in the way Jesus died for you, 
And the way he did that, he was fulfilling God's plan that was thousands of years in the making. And you were on his heart. Because this thing that we culturally call Easter, oh, it has much deeper roots. Some of you may know this, but, but that, that's, just, that's just the cultural name that some people have adopted you know, for Easter. It's Resurrection Sunday. But Jesus, in Jesus' day, it was actually a very different and very important holy day called Passover, a Hebrew festival that had been celebrated for thousands of years. Passover is the celebration that God had, had rescued his people from bondage in their past. And it was a celebration that culminated at 3 p.m. on Friday on Passover when the high priest would sacrifice the final Passover lamb for the forgiveness of all the people. Now, Passover has many traditions that come with it the whole week. It's kind of like our Christmas. You know, when it comes to Christmas, we have certain songs that we like to sing about Christmas. We have certain movies we rewatch. We have stories we like to retell. We wear certain things. We go to to parties and wear ugly sweaters and and, and make merry, you know? It's a big festival with lots of traditions, lots of celebrations, and Passover is just like that. All week, there would be different things to do for Passover. In fact, for Passover, in the time of Jesus, millions of people would pilgrim and make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem and pack the city to experience this. It was the, the biggest thing going. And Friday was the culmination of the Passover week when the Passover lamb was sacrificed. But, but before that day, days earlier on Sunday, was another important day that kicked the week off, and it was called Lamb Selection Day. It was a Sunday, and each Hebrew family would go and select their lamb for their offering. In fact, thousands of years before Jesus, 1,500 years actually, God through Moses wrote this and gave specifics on what each family was to do. It says this, Announce to the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each family must choose a lamb for sacrifice, one animal for each household. The animal you select must be a one-year-old male with no defect. And they're to take special care of the chosen animal until the 14th day, for four days. Again, 1,500 years before Jesus, they have been doing this annually. They have been doing this generationally. They have been doing this for a long time. Lamb Selection Day was very important. It was a part of the process that led to Passover. But it was especially important for the Hebrew high priest. The high priest was the the, the most important role. He was the the highest priest who stood between God and the people, and he would make the final sacrifice on Passover. On Lamb Selection Day, all the priests would actually gather together. They would line the streets that led from the Damascus Gate all the way to the temple, all the priests lining the street. They would each be holding a palm frond. And the high priest, he would walk out down that street, walk out of the city, and he would go to a special sheep pen, which they found evidence of, and he would take his time inspecting all the lambs to choose just the right one to be the final Passover lamb. He would inspect it and make sure it was without defect, just as God had instructed back in Exodus. The lamb the high priest would, would select was called, actually had a name, it was called the final Passover lamb. Because while each family would have their own lamb, this one would be the final sacrifice that it all culminated to at the temple. Each family would do their part, but this, this was the final one. He would select the lamb. 
the high priest would then scoop it up and begin walking back toward the gates where all the priests were lining the city street leading back to the temple. And as the high priest would carry this final Passover lamb through the gates into the city, the priest would begin to shout an ancient blessing, an ancient shout. They would say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. This was a holy parade celebrating the final Passover lamb's entry into Jerusalem. The pilgrims would join behind the priests and they would all begin to chant together as the priest made his, his way down the road. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. As they waved their palm branches. The high priest carrying the perfect final Passover lamb through the streets would arrive at the temple. And for the next four days, the lamb would remain on the temple grounds so they could inspect it every day until the 14th when it would be sacrificed. Just as Exodus had told them 1,500 years ago. But one year, something very curious happened. While the high priest was out on the western side past the Damascus Gate, inspecting lambs and picking one for lamb selection day, picking his lamb for the final Passover lamb, there was someone else entering on the eastern side of the city. You see, it was on this very day, on this very day, the 10th of Nisan, lamb selection day, that on the eastern side, Jesus came riding toward Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. And guess what the disciples and the crowds gathered were saying as he did so? A great crowd had gathered for the festival, and they heard that Jesus was coming on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches, went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You see, Jesus was selected as God's perfect Passover lamb, without sin, without blemish. Jesus had come to once and for all fulfill the Passover requirements. Jesus, God's final Passover, the lamb, was entering the city on lamb selection day and he's receiving the ancient welcome while on the other side, the high priest is walking in with his Passover lamb. Two holy parades, two spotless lambs. And for four days, that priest would inspect their Passover lamb at the temple. And for those next four days, guess where you could find Jesus? At the temple, teaching, being inspected by the people, by the priests. Now the priests, they had never liked Jesus because he didn't fit their agenda. He kept interrupting it. His teachings were infecting the people and his miracles were causing these religious elite some heartburn. For years, they had, they had tolerated this. They had put up with it, but they had been conniving to take Jesus out. And here, this very week, almost to the very day, someone from within Jesus' own people betrayed him and came to them, and they got him arrested. They arrested Jesus. And they took him, and they brought him for trial and inspection. He was examined by the high priests, at a farce of a trial. They actually brought him to the Roman governor, Pilate, to be examined as well. And, and Pilate inspected Jesus, and before he condemned Jesus to die, do you know what he said? I find no fault in him. Which is a curious thing to say, because those are the words, the very words the high priest 
would speak after inspecting the final Passover lamb on the final day. I find no fault. The high priest would have to know that his lamb was still pure. So every single day, they would inspect the lamb. It couldn't scrape. It couldn't get a wound. It couldn't, none of that. And after four days of painstakingly scrutinizing the Passover lamb, on the final day, the day of Passover, the high priest would take his one final inspection and declare, I find no fault, and condemn the Passover lamb to die. At that point, that lamb was prepared and ready to be sacrificed for the sins of the people as it had been established in Exodus thousands of years before that. And on that day, Pilate also found no fault in Jesus and condemned, condemned him to die. Now, the sacrifice by, by the, of the Passover lamb by the high priest was the culmination of a holy week. This was a big moment. This was the moment that all the pilgrims had, had made their trip for to see this. This was the moment that the blood would be shed for the forgiveness of the people. It was the moment the entire city would pause, hold their breath, lean in, and participate in the holiness and the sacredness of this moment as they were declared once again clean before God for another year. And according to this tradition, the Passover lamb, this pure lamb, was um, sacrificed on Passover at the ninth hour. That would be 3 p.m. for us. And there were many priests who had a role in this. It had to go just right. There, we, we talked about this. There was one priest who he would, he would watch the sun. He would watch the time to know just the right time. And there was another priest who had the shofar, the ram's horn, and he would blow it at just the right time. The people would hear that all throughout the city and know the sacrifice was taking place. The high priest himself, he would stand over the final Passover lamb and squeeze its ribcage with his knees. There would be a priest in front of the lamb on each side to hold it still, and another priest with a bowl to catch the blood. It had been this way for thousands of years. These priests had been trained up by priests who had taken the place of other priests for generation upon generation for their whole life. For generations, the people would make pilgrimage to see and bear witness to this. For generations, this final Passover lamb had been the culmination of all the Old Testament instructions of the shedding of blood for forgiveness of sins. And at just the right moment, at just the right moment, the priest who was watching the time would indicate this is the moment to the priest who was holding the shofar, who would then blast a trumpet that could be heard around the city. The high priest would then do this. He would place one hand on the lamb, and he would declare, I find no fault. And then, reaching down with his other hand, holding a knife, he would shed the blood of the lamb, and then he would step back, and with arms spread, he would declare to those assembled, it is Finished. At that very moment, the ninth hour, on a hill only 300 yards from that temple sacrifice, Jesus raised himself up, and Matthew records that Jesus cried out again and gave up his spirit. As the high priest was inside declaring, it is finished, what was it Jesus cried out? 
The disciple John, he was present there at the foot of the cross. And so he tells us, you see, as the blood was running from the Passover lamb there in the temple and it breathed its last and in a bleeding cry, and as the high priest stepped back and flung his arms open and declared, it is finished, our Passover lamb, Jesus, with his arms spread, raised himself up and in John 19, 30 declared, it is finished. And he gave up his life. Now, why did Jesus declare it is finished? Because Jesus, our high priest, he spread his arms and declared that the final Passover lamb had been slain. And Jesus, our true and final Passover lamb, had shed his blood. And we would never need another sacrifice for sin ever again. What had gone on for generations and generations and hundreds of years and thousands of years, once and for all, God had made right through Jesus. No longer is there any need for sacrifice for salvation. Because the high priest of God was our final Passover lamb and his blood covered what no earthly sacrifice could cover. Jesus declared it is finished. And he wants to declare that over you today. You don't need to keep living in the same shame of your past and your sins and what's, what's haunting you because of what Jesus did on the cross. It is finished. You don't have to be defined by your sins because you can be defined by his sacrifice. You don't need to keep striving to be a good enough person, hoping to be somehow religious enough that God would love you and God would be pleased with you and that he would give you eternal life because you can't. Because it is finished. And Jesus did for you and for me what we could not do for ourselves. You cannot get to heaven based on your good works because all the necessary work has already been completed by Jesus on the cross. And you don't need to live in hopelessness, uncertain of your future, or if there is good ahead for you, because it is finished in Jesus. You have hope for heaven someday, and because of him, we have hope for today as we enter into a new purpose. He has a destiny and a calling for your life while you're here on this earth. Jesus, the Son of God, he came to earth, he he preached, he healed, he lived, and he died. But it's not dying that sets Jesus apart. We all die, and thousands died on crosses. It's that Jesus didn't stay dead. It's that on Sunday morning, when the stone rolled away, hope walked out of a grave. A hope that is still alive today. A hope that is still offered today. A hope that says this, if you're close to giving up in life, It pleads with you, don't give up on a God who has never given up on you because no matter what kind of life you have lived before you hear these words, there's no sin you've committed that's too bad for his grace to overcome. You can't out-sin God's love. There's no anxiety that you live in that's too deep that his peace can't pull you up. There's no depression too dark to hold you that his light can't find you. There's no past that is so ugly that it disqualifies you from God's forgiveness and his goodness in the present. 
There's no present too complicated, no situation too messy that is beyond his salvation. And there's no future so hopeless that's beyond his purpose that he calls you to. Jesus declared, it is finished, and three days later, walked out of a tomb. And today, he has an invitation for you and your soul to walk out of a tomb as well. Jesus invites you to to place your life, your faith, your hurts, your brokenness, your hopes, your doubts in his hands and to receive his salvation. And his salvation is is forgiveness in your past. It It is peace in your present and it is hope for your future. Not just hope in heaven, but hope for today. And if you have never placed your faith in Jesus before, like I said, this is a divine appointment and you're gonna have an opportunity today. Jesus asks, who do you say I am? And in a minute, I wanna pray a prayer for you to declare like Peter, like I did, you are my savior. Send to save me. And in that prayer, you receive his salvation and purpose and calling to a new life. And for others of you here, you maybe have one point believed that Jesus was your savior, but let's be honest, you've walked away. You've wandered away. We're really good at wandering, aren't we? We're experts at sin. We've wandered. Today, for many of you, God is calling you home to remind you that no matter how far you've wandered, you have not gone beyond his love or his grace The same grace and love that covered you in salvation calls you back home. My son, my daughter, come home in faith to restore that passion and that renewal, to know the forgiveness and there is no shame or condemnation. You are called back to renewed faith and a cleansed heart. So whether you're praying this for the first time ever today or you're praying for the hundredth time to reaffirm your faith, I want to ask you to pray with me. I want to ask you to speak out loud, all of us here in this place, those joining us, And to believe in your heart. Say, Father in heaven, I know Jesus came. He lived. And he died. And he rose again. Jesus, you are my Savior. Sent to save me. I give you my heart. I give you my sin. Take a deep breath. Holy Spirit, fill me. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. For any of those who who prayed today, I want to know your story. I want to talk with you more about what that means. And I would invite you to email me personally and just tell me about your journey. Actually, because we're such an honest place here, you can email me with your doubts and your, your hurts, your questions. The reality is, this is the truth. Salvation is not the finish line of faith. It's the starting line for a life of faith. And so we want to join you in that. So email me. Talk to somebody. If you're in here, and and listen, I know on a day like this, there are people in here who have real hurts and circumstances that are crushing and anxieties that you have not been able to, to escape even during this time. And we have people in here who want to pray for you confidentially. And you can go back here in the back corner. We would love to pray over you and pray with you. And if you're in this place and you want to pray to receive Jesus, that's the place to go. If you want prayer for hope and help, that's the place to go. But Orchard, we're going to go into some worship. It's Easter Sunday.
And I'm grateful that Jesus came and died and rose again so that my sins and my failings don't get the last word in my life. He does. That's good news. I'm so grateful he loved me enough to die for me. And it makes me out of gratitude want to love him enough to live for him. And so Orchard, you're welcome to take communion in this place, the symbol of his body being broken and his blood being shed there in your seat. And at some point, I want to challenge you to stand and, and, and sing with us about a God who did a great thing and a Savior who came and fulfilled the plan of God and declared over you and your life that it is finished.